Welcome back to Lakes, Woods, and Irons with Chris Foley. Colin McDonald with you. 1380 KLIZ. Find us on Facebook at Lakes, Woods, and Irons as well. And also Podcast One, great landing spot for Minnesota podcasts, including Lakes, Woods, and Irons. That brought to you in part by Emily Greens, home to the largest green in the universe. All about fun at Emily Greens. Also check out uh, Ernie's on Goal, the on-point burger company, a great addition at Ernie's, locally owned and globally loved. So a couple sponsors for us. Golf is all about fun, Chris, or should be. No question about that, Matt. <laughs> we had uh, the Australians making a little run. They got uh, Cameron Davis just won in the playoff. That was quite exciting, actually, a three-man playoff as it came down the stretch this last weekend. And there's a couple of young Australians that are really, really playing good. Might be a new wave of uh, great Australian golfers on the way. You know, Australia has over the year for, you know, for a country its size has really has produced a lot of great champions. And, um, you know, between Greg Norman and Steve Elkington and they have they have a fantastic golf development program in Australia where. Uh, you know, the, these kids that are, are good players are really supported by their national program. And, um, you know, with so many young, good players coming out of Australia, that's holding very true. And it, as a matter of fact, former um, University of Minnesota golf coach heads that up. Oh, really? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Go ahead. Brad James, who's former uh, University, of, University of Minnesota men's golf coach when they won their national championship is in charge of their uh, their national development program, their high performance program. And uh, so many young, good players, both on the men's and ladies' size, coming out of that country for the size it is. Yeah, yeah, they, they kind of all, um, the current players, well, not so much current now, but uh, Adam Scott and Mark Leishman and Jason Day all all kind of credited you know, Greg Norman with uh, setting the whole country on fire for golf, especially when he won a couple British Opens. I know he had some heartbreak, but he was also uh, kind of a national hero in the land down under. So, uh, And now maybe that crew, Scott, Leishman, Day, are uh, probably the inspiration for some of these younger players. Garrett uh, Garrick Higo and uh, Cameron Davis, who just won. Higo was born in 1999. I always get a when I ever I see that, I think, what? 1999? <laughs> it was like yesterday. <laughs> that's, that's right. I've, I've, I've got shoes older than that, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and Higo, he's won uh, three times in Europe already, twice on the Sunshine Tour, which is South Africa, and uh, once on the PGA Tour, and he's all of 21 years old. So he's a guy to watch for sure. He can really go low. And, yeah, definitely. Uh, he uh, won two weeks ago at the uh, the new the event that replaced the the Canadian Open, the Palmetto Championship. And uh, my son Joe sees him down at Sea Island frequently and says he is uh, quite a a player, quite a work ethic, and um, expect great things from him coming up here. Yeah, he kind of hung out uh, behind 18 there as well because he knew Cameron Davis might be in. So the fellow... The fellow uh, Aussies kind of uh, hanging out together, I guess. So, <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's not always nice to see. And last night, uh, TV event made for TV, quite entertaining, really. Uh, Phil Mickelson and uh, Tom Brady against uh, Rogers and uh, DeChambeau. and uh, it was fun. They, they, you know, they 
they don't take it too serious, but they want to win. So it's kind of a good combination. And you can, it's actually kind of fun to see the quarterbacks when they get into kind of a must, you know, get on the back last six holes or something. The, the expressions on their faces change because those guys are competitive. <laughs> they, uh, yeah, they are, they are highly competitive and, and neither one of them wants to lose. That is, that's for sure. I was, <laughs> um, Aaron Rodgers, I was I was extremely impressed with uh, with his level of play. Uh, boy, he putted the lights out of it yesterday. Yeah, he did. He claimed he hasn't been playing, but who really knows with Rodgers? You know, he's he's got a he's got a fun attitude about him. He's kind of always jabbing a little bit, and you never know really where he's at. And uh, they kept kidding him about his career, of course, and where are you going to be on September twelfth, which I think is opening game, and. He just kept saying, "Well, I guess we'll we'll wait and see," but then he said to Barkley, uh, "I'll tell you next week when we're all out in Tahoe, and then you can leak it to the press." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Barkley was great to have on there too. Kept talking about what a handsome guy Tom Brady was, and Phil was talking all the time. You know what I thought was uh, noticeable was uh, uh, Deschambeau has taken some muscle off. I think uh, he 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 does look a little smaller. Yeah, um, yeah. He he is uh, he is certainly as wild as he's ever been on the tee. Yeah, <laughs> it looked yeah. like they were. It looked like they were looking for his golf balls all day. Yeah, they were, and he's uh, he's working at it, and he always says that. You know, I guess they all are, and he just has his way of working at it. I think he's good for the game. I know he's a little. Uh, they need some characters on tour. Phil's a character. DeChambeau's a character. Kepka's kind of a character, and they don't like each other. And I don't know if that's uh, good or bad for the game. I think it's probably good. Uh, I, I think there's nothing wrong with a little rivalry and keeping people talking about the game. And um, you know, whether, whether you like him or not, uh, DeChambeau has an incredible work ethic, and he, uh, you know, he definitely he he doesn't follow the trends. He sets them. Yeah, yeah, he and, does. Um, you know, so he, he he approaches the game a lot different than anybody else does, and it's uh, I think he's changing the way a lot of people think about the game. And um, you know, I think any of that is is good for golf and keeps it at the forefront and keep keeps people watching and listening and and trying new things. Sure. Well, last year he said what he was going to do, and then he went out and did what he said he was going to do and won the U.S. Open. So. Um, it was pretty amazing at the time. Uh, it's hard to keep that level yeah. of play, obviously, but uh, he's got a major under his belt, and I'm sure it's not the last. No, he's got a major underneath his belt and a lot of top finishes in, in the recent majors. So he, he didn't play well at Augusta, but he's certainly played well everybody, everywhere else, it seems like. Yeah, had a good chance here a couple weeks back and just faded the last five holes or so. One uh, one other mention of the match there. There they were at Big Sky and uh, um, out in Montana. It's, they got a they got a par five, seven hundred seventy seven yards, <laughs> which is a straight down a mine shaft, as my dad used to say. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, DeChambeau hit one four hundred eighty yards. That was one he got he got in the fairway, and uh, uh, four four hundred eighty yard drive. Not bad. Phil hit one yeah, into the bunker, you... and, and he didn't even want to hit another one. They were going to hit another one kind of for fun, you know. And Phil just said, I can't hit it any better than that. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not swinging again. <laughs> when you're playing at elevation like that, it, it, it's always amazing, especially downhill, uh, how far you can hit the golf ball. But, uh, 
it, it makes even me feel like I can, I'm a long hitter. <laughs> right. That would be good. Yeah. To drill one out there and have it roll out right. to 350 or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll be back with more. You're listening to Lakes, Woods, and Irons on 1380 KLIZ. Welcome back to Lakes, Woods, and Irons with Chris Foley, Colin McDonald with you. Great interview coming up that Chris put together with the Brandon Stooksbury, author of The Putter Book and The Wedge Book, so he'll help us all out with our short game. This segment brought to you in part by Mills Ford, your hometown dealer since 1922, and by Ernie's on Goal. Check out On Point Burger Company, a great addition at Ernie's, locally owned, globally loved. want to welcome to the show good friend from... The state of Louisiana, Brandon Stokesbury. Brandon is the head professional and recently new head professional at Metairie Country Club. Brandon, welcome to the show. Chris, thanks so much, man. It's it's uh, it's fun to be back. I appreciate the, the kind words and um, you know a little bit of oiling right now with just just getting started down here. But this is a it's a cool place and a fun journey. So where, thanks for having me on. Where where is Metairie for for our listeners? Metairie is essentially New Orleans. Okay. It is a suburb of New Orleans. Um, we are right on the, uh, they don't call them counties down here, they call them parishes, but but our golf course is, you know, 500 yards from the Orleans Parish line, okay. and so it is essentially a suburb of New Orleans, um, and so, but it's called Metairie, Metairie's the name of the town, and, and uh, Metairie Country Club. Awesome. Well, that last time we had you on the show, Brandon, you had just come out with uh, the, we- <laughs> the Wedge book, and yep. uh, you, you just recently came out with... Uh, the putter book and owner's manual for your green game. So yeah. I, I, uh, I just, I just got the book Monday night, Amazon. I had seen it come out, uh, not long ago and ordered it right away. And the, the only, I, I had, I, I've skimmed through it. I haven't gotten to read the whole thing. The only complaint I have, Brandon, is the cover is not nearly as good as the wedge book. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what was funny about that. I had this vision you know, the putter book had all that mud on the place. Right? <laughs> well, so people, I, people would come and try to scrape that mud off the book. Yeah, and I had this vision that I wanted. You know how you, you put on a green that's been freshly mowed and you get those little green grass clippings <laughs> on the face and the water. I really tried hard to recreate that. Um, and I just I could never get it. The putter I was using, I could never get it to stick. And I ended up trying to go with water and yeah. it. And it just didn't come out quite as as, uh, as visual as I wanted it to. But. It, well, it, it's still a cool cover. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, t- tell tell us about the book. It, it uh, you know, in looking through the books, you basically have four kind of skills you have to have to be a great putter, and and, and tell us what those skills are. Yeah, and so you know, a lot of people get caught up in the you know in the technique or in the in the feel. You know, and, and, and you as a golf instructor, I mean, you understand that golf's a game of skill, right? And so a lot of people don't think about putting that way. And, and I broke it down into four, three of which are measurable. Um, four is not really measurable. I call it kind of an intangible. Um, but they are in no particular order, green reading, start line control, speed control, and attitude, right? And, and, and I talk about how um, a, making a putt is almost like a math problem. And each skill has its own part to play, right? So A plus B plus C plus D equals a made putt. Um, and what we do as humans is if we are deficient at one or more of the skills, then we try to use some of more of the other skill to kind of make up for it. And a good example of that is, you know, if you if you consistently underread putts, and so if you are weak in that particular skill, then you will either mess with the start line or mess with the speed to try to hit it harder to make up for the fact that you underread the putt. 
except you don't know you're doing that, right? And so it becomes this big jumbled mess of trying to figure out why you're not a good putter. Um, and so that's kind of how I broke it down, you know, and I go through the in the book how you can measure and evaluate the speed control, green reading, and distance control skill. And then I talk about the mental side of it, which is attitude. And, 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 and I, you know, I, I tried to write as much as I could about that, but I think the one thing I'd want to bring out about that is this, um, I, I keep I keep swearing that I'm going to um, copyright this quote, right? But um, or trademark this quote. But I'm a big believer that confidence can't be earned; it has to be owned. Because statistically, we're terrible at putting. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are, right? I mean, the, the, the best players in the world from 15 feet make 25 percent of their putts. Right. The best putters on the planet, right? And yeah. so, if you're sitting around waiting to make putts to be confident that you're a good putter you're never going to be confident, right? And so you kind of have to own that confidence and believe that you're a good putter because if you putt with fear, you're toast. You have no chance. And so um, those are the four skills, and that's kind of how I, I chose to break it out. Great. Well, to tell, you know, how would you – well, let's, let's talk about you, – you talked about evaluating those, and how do, how do you evaluate somebody in those, those skill sets? Yeah, and so, so what you have to do is you have to isolate them. Right. And so I'll take start line control for a good example. I use this test. If I put you on a dead straight 10 foot putt, maybe slightly uphill or, or, you know, level, um, and I show you it straight, like I hit one in front of you and you see it doesn't break at all. And I give you an unlimited amount of time and 10 balls. You take as much time as you want, go through your full routine, whatever you want. How many of those 10 balls can you make? Well, that's pure start line, right? There's, there's really no, I mean, speed is involved, but if you, you know, speed doesn't affect how it breaks. And so if you hit it a little hard, it's still going to hit the hole. Right. Um, so, so speed control is out of the equation and green reading is out of the equation. And so that's pure start line control to put that into perspective. The best in the world will make eight and a half or nine of those out of 10. Now they don't put that well on the golf course from 10 feet because you have speed control and green reading and all the things that go into it. But if you tell them it's a straight putt, they have wonderful control over their start line. And so that's an example of how I would test the start line control skills. I would put you on that and see how many out of 10 you make. If you make six or seven, you probably play at a reasonably high level for a club golfer, right? You know, you, you probably, um, compete in your club championship, even if it's not the championship flight. But you know, you're you're a reasonable golfer. If you make less than six, we got some star control problems, um, and that tells me a lot too when I watch you do that. Because if you miss one, how you react to the putt tells me a lot about what you do when you play, right? And so, if you hit a bad putt, which inevitably happens, yeah. you know, and, and you pull it left. If the very next putt, I see you completely change the mechanics of your stroke or your aim to try to stop hitting it left, and now you block one right, that tells me a lot about what happens to you on the golf course and how you manage the deficiency in that skill. So that would be a good example of someone who tries to fix the deficiency in the start line control by adding a little bit more to the to another skill and trying to fix it with their aim, right? And so, um, so that would be an example of how I evaluate that. And there are ways to do that you know, with, with, with green reading and with speed control as well, um, to try to isolate those, to see where the, where they're deficient. And then once we find out where the problems are, we go right to work. Yeah. And you know, how, how, and how would you rank those skills as far as, as importance, distance control, start line? That's a million dollar question, right? And I, and I think, I 
think if you ask certain people, they would tell you, they would give you different answers. My answer to that would be, I think it's a sliding scale based on how far away from the hole you are. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so I think as you, as you get short putts, the probably the green reading and the speed control is a little less important. Not that it doesn't have importance, but it's a little less important than the start line control skill, right? From, from four feet. When you start getting out into seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 15 ish feet, then that really puts pressure on all three, right? Because you have to be able to control the start line, but you also have to be able to manage how speed control and green reading sort of play into that dynamic. Once you get much out beyond 15 feet, um, you know, the make percentage, even for the best in the world, goes down so low that it really becomes a lag putting game. Correct. Right. And I'm, I'm, I'm virtually not concerned at all, virtually nil concern about your start line control and way more concerned about your, your distance control and to some, con, you know, to some extent your green reading. And so I really think it's a sliding scale. Uh, you know, based on your your length from the hole, but that answer differs depending on who you ask. Some people will swear that green reading is is by far the most important skill. Some will say speed control, and so I I think based on how you bear out in the in the the, the evaluations of the three skills, yeah, then that tells us a lot about which ones are more important to you. For sure, you know, whenever regardless of what aspect of the game we're we're working on, you really have to go after the low hanging fruit to. That's right. To improve. So. That's right. And so, again, remember, humans, they'll use the other skills, right? And so it could be that they are – it could be that someone is very, very good at speed control, but it doesn't bear itself out because the other skills are so bad. Yes. Right? And so green reading is so poor that they have to hit it harder, which shows up as bad speed control – when in fact they may have perfectly good speed control, they just can't ever use their good speed control because they're always trying to make up for bad green reading, right? And so you definitely have to to, to separate them, evaluate them individually and independently, and then find the low-hanging fruit because when you solve that low-hanging fruit, sometimes the other skills start to, to sort of mesh together and you find out somebody's a lot better at one than you thought because they, were, they, they never got to use it. For sure. That's part one of Chris's interview with Brandon Stukesbury, short game guru and author of The Putter Book and The Wedge Book. We'll be back uh, with part two of that interview next to assist you with your short game. You're listening to Lakes, Woods, and Irons on 1380 KLIZ. Welcome back to Lakes, Woods, and Irons with Chris Foley. Colin McDonald with you, 1380 KLIZ, the fan. Find us on Facebook as well at Lakes, Woods, and Irons. You like our Facebook page and you have a chance at some uh, nice, nice golf swag, We'll get you some gift cards from Second Swing. All you have to do is like the page. It'll drop down menu, and you can register for some uh, uh, nice swag there for you for golf. Improve your game with uh, some cool stuff from Second Swing. Uh, this segment brought to you in part by Emily Greens, home of the largest green in the universe. It's all about fun at Emily Greens. Now back to our interview with Brandon Stukesbury, short game guru. Sure. You know, it's it's always interesting. I think as coaches like we are, it, you 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 study people and you 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 know you're you, we're by nature inquisitive and I, I think uh, it's always fascinating to me that you know good players to medium handicap players so many of them place so much emphasis in the full swing and and being 
technology or yep. technically very good at those skills. And when it comes down to putting, they don't have the same awareness of the mechanics of the stroke and yep. those skills. And um, you see a you see a great variation in people's putting strokes and putting games yep. where the rest of their game may be very technically sound. What why do you, why do you think that is, Brent? Yeah, I, I you know I you're right, and and what. What I hear more often than not, it's almost like there's this mystique surrounding putting, mm -hmm. right? That, that maybe because there isn't as much information out there in the world of, of books and videos and whatever mm -hmm. that there is as compared to full swing, um, I, I think you see a lot of stylistic differences on the tour yeah. that are easier to spot in putting than they are in full swing. Right, because the full swings happen so fast. Yeah. Um, that I think people tend to look at that and they tend to, to pick that out, and you get this sentiment like, you know, I just do whatever you want. As long, you know, as long as, and I can't tell you how many times I've yeah. heard that on a putting green. You know, well, man, if it feels good to you, it's okay. Just keep doing that. And I'm like, <laughs> what? Would you, would you pay me if I said that to you in the full swing? Yeah. Like, just because it feels good, it's still terrible, man. Right. Uh, and, and so, but there's, it's like there's this mystique, and people just don't understand it enough. And so, I really try to to break that down in the book, and I talk about how even on tour. See, the problem is on tour, you can't ever get a great camera angle, as you know, because mm -hmm. the cameras will never stand where you really need to be able to stand to be able to compare player A to player B. Um, they'll never stand beside them. You can kind of get the front on, you know, the face on view. But but if you look at the best players on the planet, you'll see all kinds of styles. You'll see fat grips, skinny grips, short putters, long putters, wide stances, narrow stances. But there's about four or five things that they all do the same. Right, just like in full swing, right? Yeah. No matter what shape they have, they all shift their weight the same way. They all deliver forward shaft lean the same way. They all manage the face, and so the same thing exists in putting. People just don't know how to pick it out, yeah. and so I really try to take people through that. And I've got this image of a, of a down the line view where I draw these lines, and I talk about the five lines of good putting. And it doesn't matter what video you pull up, it doesn't matter what player you look at. If you if you know what those lines are, you can start to identify them, and you can see all these guys do it the same way, and girls too. Yes, you know um, their eyes are all in the right spot, sort of over to slightly inside the edge of the ball. Their hands are always hanging under their shoulders. Their hips are always balanced over the back of their heels. Their arms all have bend, you know, I mean, and so um, might there be one or two outliers out there? Yes, but but if 185 of them do it one way and two do it the other way, then that tells you something. Right. So uh, you're right. I mean, there's this, there's this really interesting sort of unknown world out there and amongst amateur golfers that, that putting is this weird, you know, do whatever you want. If it feels okay, it must be good world, and that's just not true. And it's the it's the it's the one area of the game where, you know, the mid handicapper or low handicapper can be equally as good as the the best players in the world. Absolutely, I said the same thing in the wedge book, and it's even more so in the putter book, right? I mean, not many people can swing a driver like Rory McIlroy, yeah, right, or Dustin Johnson. Everybody has the ability to putt like Rory or Dustin Johnson. Exactly. Maybe Dustin's a bad example of the putting, but but. You get my point, right? I mean, yeah. you don't have to have tour-level talent or elite-level talent to be able to putt better because the physicality required 
just isn't high. Right. As compared, right? You know, as compared to swinging a driver 119 miles an hour. And so not many people can do that, but everybody can putt. And so um, I think you're right. It's, it's, it's why I decided to focus in the world of short game six years ago when I put out the wedge book. And it's why I wanted to put out the putting book because I really think the short game wedges and putting are two areas where people can save a lot of shots without nearly as much work as it takes to save a lot of shots in full swing. Exactly. Right. You know, as a coach, you know, you can't ball strike your way to success. Right. When I mean, when the best in the world miss 35% of the time, we're never going to be able to hit it close enough to save bad putting. Right. We're just not. And yeah. so um, I think it's really important, and that's kind of why I wanted to go that direction. And as I mentioned earlier, it took me a little longer to get the book out than I wanted. I probably should have put it out a couple years after the Wedge book, but that's on me. That's, you know, I drug my feet a little bit. But but nonetheless, I'm, I'm, I'm happy it's out. I'm proud of how it came out, and I think it's written in the same vein as the wedge book and so if people have have purchased the wedge book or read the wedge book then you're going to see a similar style in the putter book you bet brandon i get we got to be aware uh conscious of your time but one last question uh one of the things we talk about a lot on the show is, is practice and practicing effectively and uh can you give us a, a couple things on on practicing putting that uh that are going to make people better putters yeah, sure. So there's two things I'll say. The first I would say is practice the skills, right? And so when you go out there and you throw down three balls and you hit three balls to the same hole, you're not practicing the skills. Mm-hmm. You're just not, right? And so separate. So the first thing I would say is separate your practice into the skills. Okay, work on if you if you had a if you had an hour, right? Work on speed control for 20 minutes. And there might be three, four, or five different drills you could do that, that isolate speed control. Work on start line control for 20 minutes, right? And there might be three or four drills there. And then you work on speed control for 20 minutes. Um, so that's the first thing I would say is make sure that you're isolating the skills and then touching each individual skill in every single session, right? The second thing I would say is make sure that when you practice, you never hit the same putt twice, Okay, because there's a there's sort of a learning loop that our brains go through as uh, you know complex animals, mm-hmm. if you will, and how we think and how we learn. And you really have to be able to complete that loop in order to learn. You have to try something, evaluate whether what you tried was good relative to the goal, and then try it again. And if you can't complete that loop, Right, then, then, then nothing's ever going to happen. And so if you just stay in the same place and hit the same ball over and over and over again, eventually that loop is broken. So you, you have to challenge it, change something, change downhill versus uphill, change how far away from the hole it is, change the break from left to right to right to left. Like something has to change on every single putt. Yeah. And so those are the two things probably I would recommend the most. Isolate the skills, make sure you never hit the same putt twice. Well, that's great stuff, Brandon. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, tell us where we can get the, uh, the the putter book and the wedge book. Yeah, so everything's on Amazon, right? And so if you just search the putter book or the wedge book or, you know, Brandon Stooksbury on Amazon, you'd find it. Um, it's available in both paperback version as well as digital um, through Kindle. Um, and you can get the Kindle app, you know, on your uh, 
on your iPhone as well. It's not just in, on the Android space. Um, if you really want a signed copy, you can always reach out to me through my website. I'm happy to sign a copy to you. You can pay me direct, and I'll ship it to you that way. Awesome. Take a little longer to get to you, but it'll be personalized. But everything's available on Amazon, and, and uh, always appreciative of folks that, that want to pick it up. Awesome. Well, Brandon, we'll we'll, uh, we'll look forward to following up with you soon, and uh, have a great week next week at the Zurich Classic. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate it, man. You're a good friend, and thanks for having me on. It's always a good time. Thanks, Brandon. That was that was Brandon Stokesbury, head professional at Medidare Country Club in New Orleans. Well, I think it's official. I need the putter book and the wedge book. Great interview, Chris, from uh, from Chris Foley interviewing Brandon Stokesbury, a short game guru. Hopefully you could pick up some tips there. This segment of the show brought your way by Holiday Station stores on Mill Avenue and in Cross Lake. You're listening to Lakes, Woods, and Irons on 1380 KLIZ. Welcome back to Lakes, Woods, and Irons with Chris Foley, Colin McDonald with you, 1380 KLIZ, the fan. Also find us on Facebook at Lakes, Woods, and Irons and Podcast One at Lakes, Woods, and Irons, brought to you in part by Mills Ford, your hometown dealer since 1922. And uh, Chris Foley with me, of course. Chris, a couple things going on in the world of golf there always is it seems but uh, we'll get to uh, we'll get to the John Deere Classic in the uh, Quad Cities in a bit but I wanted to just touch briefly on the the NCAA had a huge uh, ruling that uh, went against them and uh, players of different sports all college sports can use their images and make money on it and uh, I think it's going to open up an interesting can of worms for people but I mean, in my heart of hearts I knew they would win. The lawsuit was kind of ridiculous on its face when you say you you can't make any money even though it's your image <laughs> yeah it's 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 interesting you know these college athletes to a large extent have been you know the universities make millions of dollars right uh, off of these college athletes and um you know with the premise that you know they're receiving an education well that and the cost of education is is obviously a lot but the 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 kids really they they don't benefit from much from uh, you know playing college sports, especially football. And uh, so I, I think in a lot of respects it, it's it's a great thing, but at the same time it uh, it really opens up a whole whole different dimension of things, problems, and things that can happen. I think. Well, there's always uh, boosters hanging around programs that are for years and years and years. The NCAA fought. To- fought against uh, those guys giving uh, big big bucks to athletes and vehicles and places to live and that kind of thing. So you just wonder how, how far it'll go and how much uh, how much the NCAA will be able to rein it in. But if you, if you just think in golf, say Oklahoma State, very uh, successful program, probably the top program in the country, you know, if they happen to have a, a billionaire booster who just said, yeah, I'm just going to buy this – home and all the golfers can live in it during their time here yeah. in Oklahoma. You know, that would be an easy thing probably to do. I don't know. but it, uh, Yeah, no, I, I, I think so for sure. And the, the biggest thing is that the, you know, the kids can be paid when it's NIL, name, image, and likeness. Right. And they can be compensated for that. Um, I don't know how much impact it will have on golf because of the, the, the low visibility of college golf. And now there, there's a few tournaments that are on TV, but not a lot. And, um, but I, th- I think to a, you know, it's a, a niche market. 
but for some of the big programs like you're talking about the Oklahoma States, the Stanfords, the Cal's, um, some of those kids could make a significant amount of money probably. Yeah, yeah. Wealthy donor here or there. Probably, like you're saying, won't affect golf as much as uh, be very wary of football. And the Alabamas and Ohio States and Miamis of the world are going to have, and uh, maybe UCLA and USC might be some Cadillacs driving up with the suitcases full of cash. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> The only the only difference is now it's uh, now it's legal rather than illegal. Yeah, yeah, very true. A tournament coming up, Chris. That's kind of near and dear to your heart. The John Deere Classic celebrating its uh, golden anniversary. Uh, Golfworks had a nice article calling it the most overachieving event in the history of the tour. Prepares to turn fifty years old. So they're basically saying kind of a uh, smaller community putting on a really big show uh, with the John Deere. Yeah, you know, they, the, the Quad Cities really supports the event. And it's always been one of the worst events on the schedule. It's either, uh, for many years, it was the same week as the British Open Championship. Uh, and, you know, in recent years, the last 10 to 15 years, it's been the week before the British Open. But they, they've John Deere's done a tremendous job of attracting top players. Um, the PGA Tour and the RNA have helped out by giving a – uh, you know, kind of the last spot and exemption for any pl- for a player who isn't exempt, and um, they have a charter jet that that flies from Moline to uh, to the Open Championship site, and they they've had some great champions. You know, the Jack Zach Johnson's won it uh, uh, I think four times, and it's a, it's a home game for him being from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And Jordan Spieth had success there, and just a lot of uh, you know they've had they've had some great events there. Yeah, they really have, and uh, I didn't realize, I was just reading some of the history of it, that Ed McMahon was pretty heavily involved when everything got going. He used to bring in uh, a lot of Hollywood types to kind of promote it when it first got started. Uh, They say here he would bring in Bob Hope and Jerry Lewis and uh, uh, stars and chums from the Johnny Carson Tonight Show. So uh, Ed was a big help, evidently, and uh, Jack Jack Fleck won a couple times. Well, yeah, Jack Fleck, uh, I think, won very early in the in the tournament's history. But uh, you know, Jack Fleck was a was a club, a, a place called Emi's Golf Course that I actually the course I grew up on. And uh, Fleck won the U.S. Open, beat Ben Hogan in a playoff in uh, uh, 1958 at Olympic Club, and uh, became a national hero and a huge hero in the Quad Cities. Yeah, yeah. He might not have won the Quad Cities. I think I was thinking of the U.S. Open. It was Dean Beeman, who was commissioner of golf, won a couple times there, didn't he? He did. He, Dean Beeman may have won the first event. Yeah, and then set his clubs aside and was the leader of the PGA for many, many years. That's right. Chris, on the uh, practice tee, what's everybody working on this time of year? You know, it's it's kind of that mid-season. You hate to say the Fourth of July. We're we're halfway through the <laughs> through the summer and kind of halfway through the golf season. But uh, you know, people either are either peaking right now or or slumping right now. But uh, you know, I, I think uh, people have either played a lot of golf this time of year or they're uh, maybe just getting into the game. But uh, uh, you know, I, the the biggest thing I see is 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 when people are getting off this time of year, they're usually, uh, it's usually approach play. And, um, you know, when you come to the range, I think you, the, the, the area where you got to practice, you know, other than 
working on a short game like we've talked about. But you, you got to practice approach play from 125 to 175 yards. Yeah. And when you when you, when you look at statistically people's play, if they're playing from the right the right correct tee boxes for them, you know, about 60 to 70 percent of their approach shots are going to come in that distance. That you know, if you, if you can just hit two to three more greens around by hitting the, the right golf club and, and hitting it on the green from those, it can drop exponentially. And then, you know, if you, for every green you hit in regulation, it's worth about two to two and a half shots around. So you hit more greens, you shoot lower scores, and hopefully have a lot more fun. More smiles, yeah. Lower scores equals exactly. more smiles on the golf course. And yeah. then you always say, you know, you shoot your best round and think, I left a couple out there. That's right. It doesn't matter what you shoot. You can always you can always say that. That's for sure. <laughs> that's right, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, Mac. That's Chris Foley. I'm Colin McDonald. You've been listening to Lakes Woods and Irons on 1380 KLIZ.